Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. Later this hour, USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director Daniel Smirowski on the USDA disaster declaration and what that means for flooded farms in the 413. And we'll talk with Jenny Crawford, mistress of all things medieval, about the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair at the Cummington Fairgrounds this weekend. Do they call medieval times the Dark Ages because there were a lot of knights? No, they don't. The medieval times and the Dark Ages are not the same, by the way. But first. Greetings. Hey, how are you? Good, and you? Good, good. In the district? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, in, um, I'm in Worcester today. I, uh, I have to go to have an event in Grafton and then Uxbridge, and then and that's it. So. Well, that's good. Not too many <laughs> events. No, today, yeah, I'm not killing myself this week. <laughs> it's the summer after all. You gotta take it as easy as you can. Yeah. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern. Donald Trump, former president of the United States, has been indicted again this week. An article in Politico says, quote, the newest indictment against Donald Trump contains one of the gravest charges any citizen, let alone a former president, could face, undermining American democracy through a concerted effort to overturn the results of a presidential election. There is a rally in your district tonight, a no one is above the law rally in response to the indictments in front of Northampton City Hall at 5.30 this evening. Your thoughts on the most recent indictment, Congressman? Well, I I believe that, that nobody should be above the law in this country. I mean, that's that's one of the hallmarks uh, of our democracy. And uh, we had a president who, who tried to rob us of that democracy. It is a very serious charge, uh, and he ought to be held to account. And you know, he will go before a judge and a jury, um, and they will make the final decision. This is not a political issue. Uh, this is not a hearing before Congress. This is before a judge and a jury. Um, he will have his day in court. He can say whatever he wants to say, and then they will make a decision. Uh, but in my opinion, uh, Donald Trump is guilty as charged, and. Uh, uh, and he, you know, he has a pattern of criminal behavior. He thinks he is above the law, and um, and I'm glad that, you know, he's, he's 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 finally approaching his judgment day, and we'll see how it all turns out. And just for context, and I'm sure people know this, Trump is facing 78 felony charges across three criminal cases so far. Uh, it's unprecedented given that he was the president of the United States, but. Close to half of the country believes this is a witch hunt. Close to half the country says this is a free speech issue. This is not an issue of treason or trying to overturn our democracy. Is there a way that you can see, Congressman, to hold someone accountable for what they may have done wrong, even criminally, without it tearing the nation apart? Well, you know, we had this similar debate um, when Richard Nixon was president. Um, And there were people, you know, this was during the impeachment trial and People were saying you can't impeach the president because if you do, it will tear the country apart. It was traumatic back then, uh, and Nixon ultimately resigned. Uh, But the bottom line is, uh, you know, uh, it was the right thing to do. I mean, if you turn a blind eye uh, when a president breaks the law, then every president will think they have the right to break the law. So yeah, no, I, I look at that. You know, Donald Trump has a uh, you know a, a strong support base throughout this country. People who have drunk the Kool Aid, who believe the lies, um, and you know, my hope is that this trial will be televised, uh, and 
you know, people can witness it uh, and make their make their own judgments. But this is not a free about free speech. But he he can say all he wants that the election was rigged, that he really won, that he won by a landslide, he won by a huge amount. I mean, that that's that's not the illegality here. You have the right to say whatever you want to say, even lie. Uh, that's not what this is. It is his actions uh, that he's being held to account for. Uh, and, uh, and that is in the indictment. And, um, you know, and he will have an opportunity to defend himself. And I, I, again, I just hope that it is televised so that, you know, people are not getting information secondhand. They can watch it for themselves. I know that U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, Ed Markey, also calling for the uh, trial to be televised. We'll see if that actually happens. Uh, Closer to home, we're still talking about the floods of early July, and now the federal agency, as we've discussed for the last few weeks on the show, the USDA has declared parts of Massachusetts a disaster area after those floods. Um, Later in this show, the USDA is going to be on talking about how that federal money will impact the farmers. From what you've seen, uh, from what the USDA has said in regards to this flood disaster, uh, is this a good step? Are there questions you want me to ask the USDA when they're in the studio with us in just a little bit? Yeah, no. I, okay, we, I, you know, I, I welcomed uh, the USDA's announcement. I think our entire delegation did as well. It will be, a, it will help, uh, but it's not all the help that farmers need. And the question is, you know, what other, what else is out there to get direct assistance to farmers? Uh, you know, who might not benefit from this. Uh, you know, they could, they could do some refinancing of their existing loans, which will help, but, you know, this is, some of the damages is, is pretty severe. You know, some of us are, are, are trying to, you know, work on raising money privately as well uh, so that we can help uh, individual farmers, uh, you know, get through all of this. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, uh, and I was in Maine with the Agriculture Committee, we were doing some field hearings, one of the things that I brought up uh, to the chairman and to others is that, you know, a lot of the, 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 the assistance and protections that are available to big and uh, industrial farmers are not there for small and medium-sized farms. And in New England and in Massachusetts in particular, you know, most of our farms are small or medium-sized. I mean, they're not these mega farms that you see in the Midwest or in California. And when disaster hits, you know, there's not a lot of help available. And, you know, we, we, we need to make sure that they get the assistance they need. You know, otherwise some of them will just shut down. Tell us about your trip with the Agricultural Committee to Maine. What was the purpose of that trip and what did you learn, Congressman Jim McGovern? Well, I mean, a lot of the Maine farms are kind of like Massachusetts farms. I mean, they're not mega farms. I mean, and they, and they, and they are also very diversified, not just growing things. Some, some of them have farm stands. Some of them are you know, are, are, you know, have breweries, some of them have digesters, I mean, they have all kinds of stuff, but it's, they, they have to multitask in order to, in order to survive. We also did a lot of, uh, uh, you know, we did a lot of business to aquaculture, which is a, um, which is a, you know, a, a growing farming industry in, um, in Maine, uh, because we're watching people have growing oysters and scallops and, and clams and, um, you know, and, and the challenges that they face as well. You know, we all think of Maine lobsters, but the waters up there are getting warmer. Uh, it's much more difficult for a lot of lobster men and women to be able to do what they used to do. So they have found it necessary because the climate change to diversify. And we learned a lot about that as well. It was a good, a good couple of days. And, um, and you know, I learned a lot. 
Keeping it local again in Massachusetts on Beacon Hill, the Massachusetts legislature has done something that you've been advocating for for a long time, making free school meals K-12 through permanent as part of the much later than expected, I think, state budget. Um, as I said, you've been a big champion of this idea. Um, it could be a game changer for students in Massachusetts. Is there an effort to make something like this happen on the federal level? Yeah, we have we have been pushing this on the federal level. It's unlikely to happen uh, given the Congress that we have right now. So that's why going dealing with this state by state um, is so incredibly important. But I'm proud of our state legislative delegation. I, I talked to uh, Senate President Spilka and uh, Speaker Mariano, and I told them that I am thrilled with uh, their leadership on this. This is a big deal. Uh, it'll make sure that all of our kids have access to good, nutritious food at schools. Teachers are not going to have to be bill collectors. Um, there's no stigma involved in here. And, you know, we want to make sure that those meals are, are you know, are good and healthy um, and appetizing because we don't want to give our kids junk. But this is a huge deal, and it helps us in our battle against hunger uh, in the state. And um, I hope other states will follow. I mean, Maine has it already. Vermont has it already. Minnesota, California, some states have already done it. Uh, but it is really important uh, that we did it. And again, our local legislative delegation, I've talked to Natalie Blay and Joe Comerford and Lindsay Sabadoza. And, you know, I mean, they, 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 these guys have been champions of this stuff. Uh, and if anybody sees them, you ought to, you ought to thank your state legislative representative for, for their leadership on this. So I'm really, I'm really thrilled. On the federal level, you introduced uh, a new act that has to do with food and farmers. It's a bill to support American farmers and rural communities through plant-based food production. It's called the Plant Act, and I'm going to give you a little bit of grief about this acronym here. Uh Peas, Legumes, and Nuts Today Act is the acronym (laughs) for the Plant Act. Peas, Legumes, and Nuts Today Act. Who came up with that title? Well, I, I, I can't claim credit for that. So, um, but uh, but uh, in any event, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, I think we have to start getting more serious about, you know, um, you know plant-based foods and, um, you know, because, you know, with the challenges we're facing globally with climate change, with everything else, also with health issues, we have to start transitioning more, um purposefully in, in that direction. And that's what, what, what this is about. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I will see what, whether we get any traction in this Congress, but I wanted to put out a marker bill and, and let's see whether we can begin the discussion. And, um, you know, I, I got a lot of people who are excited about it, so we'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I can't claim credit for the title. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit more about what that would mean. I mean, how would that play out in real time? Well, I mean, so, I mean, obviously we have to try to get a hearing on the bill and we're going to have to you know, see whether we can get the uh, Ag Committee and the, I think it's one other committee it's referred to, to uh, to report it out and bring it to the floor. Um, but um, more, there's more and more demand for plant-based foods. Um, and um, and I, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, what is, what is good for our environment and and, you know, what is responding to the global challenges of climate change, this is the direction we need to move in. No, I'm not saying we should ban people from eating meat, and I'm not, that's not, that's not what this is about, but it's, a, it's, about, it's about more aggressively moving in that direction and presenting people with more and more alternatives. Um, 
look, I, you know, I, you know, we did this White House conference on hunger, um, food and nutrition and health. I mean, you know, one of the things that we, we, we learned very, very uh, clearly was that, you know, the diet related diseases are on the uptick. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways to control healthcare costs is to try to give people better alternatives, make them more appealing. And, you know, look, I, you know, I, I, I love a hamburger like everybody else. And I will die eating a hamburger, but the point of the matter is, please don't. <laughs> yeah. We need to, we, we need to move. We, we need to start moving, um, in a, in a different direction and providing people with more alternatives. And I think it's also good for our farmers as well. Um, at that White House conference, which I was able to attend, uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, told a very powerful testimony about his battle with diabetes, where he was going blind and uh, changed right. to a plant-based diet, and claims right. that that is what helped him uh, yeah. to restore his sight, he, to he get reversed. off of diabetes, yeah. get off diabetes medication, and then gave the same plant-based diet to his mother, who was right. experiencing yeah. the same symptoms. Yes. He reversed his condition, his diabetes. So, you know, I always thought, we always talk about food as medicine. Well, food is not only preventative. Uh, good food is not only preventative of, in terms of getting diseases. It can reverse certain conditions. I was at an event day before yesterday, uh, a food as medicine event in Cambridge at Google headquarters. Um, you know, we had uh, experts from, you know, all around the country talking about how we need to move more aggressively in the, in this direction. And we talked about you know, I mean, I, I, I had a bill uh, that uh, that passed the House that basically said that we're going to we're going to we're, we're going to deny federal um, funding for medical schools that don't teach nutrition. I mean, the idea that you can become a doctor or, you know, and, and, and never have to learn anything about nutrition when, you know, nutrition is so you know important to our health and well-being is ridiculous. And so because of that bill, we have now medical schools and, you know, the people who design, design the curriculum moving in the direction of putting nutrition into, into the, uh, in, into the medical education. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, you know, you know, food is a lot of things, but it is medicine as well. And, um, and if we want to keep people healthy, it's a lot cheaper to make sure that people have access to good food, healthy food than it is to, Give, do surgery around them in a hospital or, or treat a chronic condition. And as you mentioned, Eric Adams, I mean, literally transformed his life and that of his mother, reversed his diabetes, changed his situation. And I mean, you know, he looks, you know, he's, he's in great shape, but the bottom line is he has increased, you know, the length of his life, no doubt, as a result of that. Um, and he is, um, feels better and, and he's cheaper on our system as well. So this is a win, 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 win. And uh, one of the steps in that direction is the peas, legumes, and nuts today act or the plant act that Congressman McGovern has introduced to support American farmers. Uh, Congressman McGovern joins us every week. You can send a question for the congressman, the fab 413 at nepm.org or 1-800-639-9120 to text your question. Talk to you again next week, Congressman. Thanks so much. All the best. Be safe. Thanks. Later in the show, a preview of the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair happening this weekend in Cummington. But up next, USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director Daniel, Daniel Smorowski on what the recent disaster declaration means for Western Mass farms affected by the floods. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM.
The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to the fabulous 413. Earlier this week, the USDA designated Hampshire, Hamden, Worcester, Norfolk, Berkshire, Bristol, and Franklin counties as primary natural disaster areas. That's a lot of space. We're joined by USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director Daniel Smorowski to help us understand what this designation means for our farmers in the 413. Thank, Thank you, you for, for joining, joining us. us. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's do a little bit of an uh, origin story for Daniel Smarowski here. You grew up uh, with, as part of the Smarowski family of farms in Montague, right? That's correct, yeah. Our farm just actually turned 100 years old this year. That's awesome. And yep. <laughs> tell yep. us about the farm and its history. Uh, it's about 175 acres. Uh, my grandfather, Alexander, established it back in 1923. Um, we've raised various crops throughout the years. Uh, mostly uh, potatoes, sweet corn, pickling cucumbers when, when that was in the, in the valley. Um, but I've kind of switched things up in uh, raising basically about 20 acres of asparagus right now and some butternut squash. And I admit, I know that Hadley gets all of the glory for asparagus, but sometimes on my way home, it's easier for me to round through and to get the Smorowski asparagus on the way home. Well, and we thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> then you went to the Stockbridge School, which is the agricultural school yep. um, at UMass Amherst. What did you study there? I took up uh, fruit and vegetable crops. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. Class of 86, so I'm dating myself a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming that all these farms that you're now working with through the USDA are, especially in this area, are people and farmers that you have uh, have known. Yes, I grew up with some of them. And um, just, you know, back in 1984, when we had a flood back then, it was pretty bad. And uh, it, it, it just seems to be more devastating right now. Um, just to, and talking to many of the farmers out there, just, just to hear it in their voice. You know, farmers are optimistic. And it just, it, it saddens me to, to hear how they've been, you know, hit with this flood. And, um, you know, if there's any way that we can help in the USDA, the Farm Service Agency, to provide some assistance to them, then, you know, that's what I'm here for. That's what I was appointed by the Biden administration to do. And and that's what I'm doing right now. We've been following the story about the flood since they happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been talking to Congressman Jim McGovern weekly, as well as the Beacon Hill delegation on occasion as well. And it seems like federal money through FEMA is not available to farmers directly, that they're working on infrastructure issues, bridges and roads yep. that may have collapsed in the flooding, which also happened. Culverts, like this is something that we mm-hmm. will definitely have to deal with uh, in our area as well. Route 2, right near where yep. you're from and I am, it's, it has collapsed to yep. a large degree. It's yep. stunning. The pictures are horrifying. They are horrifying. Yeah, I was up in Conway yesterday and just seeing what they've been able to do so far on side of the roads and putting the trap rock in. And so it was it was devastating up there. Yeah, mm-hmm. not to mention the fact, again, we mentioned it last week on the show, but a road collapsed in Deerfield and Ben Clark, fruit farmer from Clarkdale Fruit Farm, who happens to also be a firefighter, mm-hmm. rescued a woman f- who was dangling uh, over the edge. I found out, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to anyway, that the gun... <laughs> The governor herself called uh, Ben Clark to congratulate him for his heroic efforts. Uh, the other day. So, again, congratulations job, to him. Um, but, you know, this 
what Jim McGovern had pinned his hopes on, Congressman Jim McGovern, was that through the USDA, we could directly get money to farmers if a disaster declaration Mm -hmm. was declared. And it has been. So tell us about how this money through the USDA is going to help these farmers affect. Yeah, basically, there's we have a we have a big toolbox and we have a bunch of tools in that toolbox to help out the farmers. And uh, one of the big ones is our emergency conservation program which enables farmers to look at some practices that may have happened because of the, the, fl- the flooding. So let's say our um, emergency conservation pro- practice number one looks at removing debris. Okay, so you had all the flood water that came down the Connecticut River or wherever, and there was other rivers that flooded as mm-hmm. well. And say there's some trees or something in the fields, um, we can do a cost share program with those individuals to um, remove that debris. Now, of course, when there's flooding, you're going to have sediment that comes in. Similar to what happened in uh, when Hurricane Irene came through. And uh, we were able to help some of the farmers remove that unwanted silt that, that had been deposited because of the flooding. So we can help them with that as well. Now, also... So hold on, let me stop you right there. Speaking with Daniel Smirowski, who is the uh, USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director, when FEMA comes in and does this, they send in a small entourage of people to come and actually, you know, rebuild and help. Is that how USDA does it when when the silt is in there? When, like at uh, Grow Food Northampton, a dumpster f- floats down river and into the farm area? Uh, basically, the farmer would would pay, be paying for that, you know, project, and then we would provide funds back to them, mm-hmm. you know, once they uh, complete the project. So more of a reimbursement. Yeah, program. reimbursement. Yeah. yeah, basically there's there's a cost share involved with that. Mm-hmm. You know, so say if it's a $10,000 project, you know, we go, go up to 75%. So the producer's um, cost would be 2500 bucks. And so that's one way that the USDA is going to be helping the yep. farmers. They'll be able yep. to remediate some of the farmland from silt and other debris that may have come yep. out. How else will and we, we all, do- And one other practice within that emergency conservation program is to help restore the farmland back to what its original was. So mm-hmm. when, when, ma- when water sits and starts moving, it tends to take. And that's what happens with soil erosion. And there was, a lot of, there was quite a bit of soil erosion as well. Um, with this flooding. So that's a practice that we can help out with as well. And it's a sort of way of like restoring nutrients to the soil in addition to just restoring the Well, it's soil. basically looking at the, repairing the soil and bring it back to um, plantable levels. Plantable level, yeah. Yeah. And is that by, you know, trucking in yeah. usable? Yeah. No, so I might have to, yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, that is, it's not like a team from USDA that's doing no, that. No, no. This is all private. Yeah. You know, this would be the, the producer reaching out to a local construction company to help them, you know, truck all that material in or to remove the debris out. When we were talking about FEMA money and whether this would be declared a federal disaster, there was a tipping point of money about, I think, 11, a little over $11 million uh, in damages to, to trigger a FEMA disaster. What was it that wa- allowed for the USDA to declare this a disaster? Was it at the behest of the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, himself just looking at the data and saying, okay, this counts, or how does it Yeah, we, ha- we have to be able to show that there's been at least a 30% loss. Oh. In a crop. Uh-huh. And um, obviously with the damage that we did see, it was quite apparent that it was over 30%, you know. So 
Um, my staff, um, I have county offices located throughout the state, and we, I just directed them to gather as much information as you possibly could, as quickly as you could. And, uh, the, you know, the producers, you know, know our offices, so they were in contact. So that information was pretty readily available. So we were able to put that together pretty quick and uh, get it down to our national office in Washington to um, present that disaster declaration. Were there things already in process for uh, farmers here after the frosts as well? Is this a combination Mm -hmm. of the two, well, at this point, basically like three, considering the kind of ongoing flooding disaster, but like it it ended up being a combination of all of those things? No, that's a separate one. We already- Separate disasters. (laughs) It it just seems like 2023 has been an interesting year so far here, Um, and it's not over. Uh, but we did, in the May, on May 17th, 18th, we had that frost freeze that um, affected a lot of producers. And uh, we, again, put out a disaster declaration for pretty much the whole state on that one. And that also, because it was so widespread, that you know, it reached into Vermont, New Hampshire, and Connecticut, and all that. So um, it was a... It, it was a good chance to, you know, help the farmers out that way too. And then now we come into a month later almost, or two months later, and we've got the flooding that occurred. And we're still assessing the damage from, not only from that event, but we're also looking at the rain that has occurred because it almost seems like it hasn't stopped. You know, yeah, it's been nice. We've had a nice couple last days, you know, here in the valley. But it's supposed to rain tomorrow. But it's supposed to rain again tomorrow. (laughs) So... You know, so we're, we're kind of looking at what are the damages going to be? Because if the producers can't get back into the fields, what is that going to do to their crop? So we're, we're still actively in assessing what's going on, not only, you know, from the original flooding event and rain event, but what's been occurring after that event, too. That is the USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director, Daniel Smirowski, who's helping us to understand what this USDA declaration of disaster means. Coming up, we'll have more with Daniel Smirowski. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Lee Smith. We're here with USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director Daniel Smirowski, who's from the 413. He's from Montague, living in Sunderland right now, and helping us to explain the USDA declaration of disaster in regards to the flooding and then the anticipated rains uh, as part of it. We had UMass Extension on the show yesterday talking about uh, the soil diseases that come about when things are too wet. I just randomly saw a person on social media talking about, hey, these pickles that I usually get from this pickle place seem squishy. So there's more repercussions than just the initial repercussions of the flood itself in, in early July. Ardwell Farm was talking about that as well. Like yeah. They're one of the farms that managed to get out mostly unscathed, but they're seeing some of the repercussions of it just being wet and in their vegetables, like, again, like cucumbers. Now, there is the governor set up through the United Way of Central Mass, a, a, a farm resiliency fund that individuals can donate to. I know the attorney general's office donated a substantial amount of money to it. That money is being triaged through several organizations to get into the hands directly of the farmers. Because as we've mentioned, FEMA money cannot go in directly into the hands of farmers. Mm-hmm. 
Neither really is the USDA money going directly into the hands of farmers as a grant. It's coming out as a loan. Is that correct? Uh, some, yeah, we do have an emergency loan program. Usually what happens when there is a disaster declaration declared, it, it, it basically opens up the emergency loan, loan fund. And um, what that is, it's a low interest loan that farmers can apply for up to $500,000. And it carries a 3.75 interest rate. Okay. Now, you know, what we're hearing throughout this whole time period is that, you know, the producers don't want to take on any more loans, understandably. But, you know, they still are going to have debt associated with the operating expenses from this year's crop. So let's say what the interest rate is. What, what is it? You know, eight and a half, nine percent. So you take a three and a half percent, a three and three quarter interest rate, as opposed to an eight and a half or nine percent interest rate on, say, some operating expenses for, say, fertilizer, seed, chemicals, things like that, you know, five hundred thousand dollars in a say a four percent savings on interest, you can start, you know, you can help maybe pay for some of your other expenses throughout the year and not have to take out any additional debt too. So it is a good program, you know, it is there available uh, for the for the producers and. Um, we encourage anybody to, to, you know, call our county offices and uh, take advantage of that. And there is an application that we'll post a link to uh, with this podcast so that if you happen to be a farmer or think that this may apply to you, you could apply for this as well. But I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as a taxpayer, mm-hmm. uh, is it frustrating when you can't directly support these farmers in this way? When you hear in, you know, 2020, there's these huge agricultural farms in, in the Midwest that are getting bailed out, whether they need to be or not, a direct amount of a cash payout to these big farms, to see these small farms, not unlike your own farm that you grew up on, struggling in this way, but yet representing the federal government through the USDA, is it frustrating that there can't be more direct relief offered from the federal government? I mean, we have monies available. We have a lot of, we have a direct loan program too. That but I mean, I'm not talking about loans. I'm talking about, are there ways that they're, you know, like a, a like a bailout essentially? Yeah, I, I don't usually comment on that. So that's a little <laughs> bit above my pay grade. So I just stick to we'll what, I, Scott what I, what I, over here. I know <laughs> what I can, uh, what I can administer. And I think that, you know, we try to do a pretty good job at that. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting, and you mentioned this before, too, that you uh, were appointed by President Biden to this role. And yep. I know uh, Scott Soares, who I jokingly mentioned right there, the director of rural affairs for all of yep. New England yep. uh, for the USDA. He was uh, that in that position until... Uh, 2016, and then I don't know what happened, and then he was in that he position. He took a, a bit of a sabbatical, yeah, right, and then came back in four years. So when you, in some ways, these roles you serve at the pleasure of the existing president. Is that correct? That is correct. Right now, but I've I've worked for the USDA Farm Service Agency, Farmers Home Administration, for 37 years, 36 years prior to taking this appointment. So then yours is not um, with the. The tides of politics. So if a Republican, oh, it, is, it is now. Okay, <laughs> it is now. Oh wow. Oh yeah. no. It is now. So tell me about that. Is it so? Does it make it hard for you to do your work, knowing that there's no. an election I mean, coming I, up I, next year? I took on this role because I I wanted to advocate for the farmers. Yeah. And I feel that you know this situation with the flooding. That's what I was put into this position to do, and to try to expedite you know, this des- disaster declaration as soon as I could. And knowing what my staff can do, they do an excellent job. They work with the farmers all, on a day-to-day basis, and they know what they're going through. So 
just to get this information pulled together so quickly was was gratifying to me and knowing that I was able to get that down to our Washington office as soon as possible. But does it make it difficult for you to do your job knowing that there's an election next year and that you may not be in that position? Mm -hmm. Nope. I don't. I just. I'm just going to keep forging ahead. You can do it day ahead. to day. That's I'm a good just way gonna to keep forging ahead. <laughs> no, you just like help navigate like with all the information because there's a lot of information <laughs> on that sheet. Like a lot of information. Yeah, I if I were, yeah. if I didn't have something like attached, like someone attached to this, and I was trying to navigate that on my own, like that would be overwhelming. Like it's really important to have those people there who like aren't necessarily affiliated, who are just here for you know this community to help them out. Regardless, because that's the community that needs help. Even, like, at, even after 37 years, I'm still learning on the job. Right? To be honest with you. No, we, there's always different programs that come out. So we're always uh, you know, trying to do the best for the producers as we possibly can. Is there a program that you've encountered or that has started recently that you wish more farmers that you're interacting with, like disaster or no, knew about to take advantage of? Yeah, one of the one of the programs that we do offer is our non non-insured assistance program, otherwise known as NAP. Um, I, we, I could we, use we one talk, of those. We talk, yeah. <laughs> we always talk in acronyms, so um, <laughs> that's the one that hits us. Oh, the yeah, hardest. we heard about the Plant Act from Congressman <laughs> McGovern. Wait a minute, it's, it's NAP and not NIP. No. It's no, not, not insured. Assistance. Oh, assistance. Oh, assistance. Okay, right. <laughs> yep. And what that I does is... I can also is, use a NIP, by the yeah, way. Um, it. Now, it, it, it basically provides coverage to producers. So say if they're raising butternut squash or cucumbers or tomatoes, um, they can, they can uh, apply for or, or buy insurance. It's an insurance-based program. And there's a couple of different sides to it. You've got the catastrophic coverage, which looks at... Basically, you have to have a 50% loss and you get paid on a 55% of a price that we have established. Now, you can also buy up your insurance to 65%. So it lowers the amount of loss that you have to suffer in order to uh, obtain a payment, but also you get 100% of the price. So many of the farmers in the valley, you know, the farmers have good yields. And you want to protect those yields, and that's what this program is for. And I'd like to see, you know, you know, producers take more advantage of the buy-up. Um, you know, they look at a lot of them do purchase the uh, catastrophic, but then it becomes, you know, it's like well, I didn't get as much. Well, if you, if you can, if you have a good yield, then you need to protect that yield. So. And I'm and I'm actually a client of that. I <laughs> I uh, I do buy up on my on my butternut squash, and it's there if I need it. It's so. like the hair club for men. That's right. I'm Not size spurling. Just the president, <laughs> also a client. Uh, USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director Daniel Smirowski. Uh, these disasters seem like they're not going away anytime soon. What are you and the USDA, especially locally in Massachusetts, doing? to protect farmers going forward when these disasters are happening more and more frequently? The best thing we can do is make sure we have the information available to them so that it, when it does happen, and, it, and you're right, it, it has been occurring more frequently. I mean, you go back uh, two years ago, it was wet then, yeah. not as wet as it was right. this and year. And then in between then was last a horrible year, drought. Yeah. It yeah. was dry as a bone. Yeah. So, you know, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's tough to uh, try to manage that. It'd be nice to have one just regular year, but <laughs> yeah, um, was it regular it when you started thirty six years ago? Did it feel like more predictable then? It, yeah, it, it, you could 
it wasn't ha- as much disasters like that. Mm-hmm. We still had them, yes. But, but not so much just, of a straight up It just seems swing. every year now, mm-hmm. you know. What does your day-to-day job look like when there aren't these disasters in your role? Or are you starting to forget what that looks like? (laughs) In all honesty, yeah. Um, You know, I've been in contact, you know, with Senator Warren's office, you know, Senator Markey's office, Congressman McGovern's office, and Congressman Neal's office on a, you know, pretty regular basis now. So, so yeah, and this is just your day-to-day. There's no... yeah. Yep. Wow. It's just trying to make sure right now that day, my day-to-day basis is to get these programs out to the farmers and that they start contacting our offices so that they can sign up for these programs. What's the closest office to where we are right now? It'd be in Hadley. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's in um, that's in Hadley on Route 9. And then uh, we also, also have an office in Greenfield. Uh, we also have an office in Berkshire County as well in Pittsfield. Well, I'm sure you and the other resources at your disposal are doing a good job of reaching out to farms that are affected. But if you should happen to be listening to this and are not aware of what to do, we're going to post a link online to the USDA uh, FSA online resources that talks about the disaster declaration. It talks about the non-emergency farm loans, the emergency and disaster recovery programs, and a whole lot more. Uh, Thank you for explaining how this has all been working. Uh, The USDA Farm Service Agency State Executive Director, Daniel Smirowski. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Up next, Jenny Crawford, Mistress of All Things Medieval, with a preview of the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair at the Cummington Fairgrounds this weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Hello. Hello. Huzzah. Hey. <laughs> okay. We made it work. Yay, it worked. Fantastic. That's what happens when you try to get modern technology involved in an old-timey Renaissance fair type thing. I mean, yeah. Exactly. That's facts. But, like, <laughs> neither of us are particularly good at falconry, so, like, outside of that and taking the nearest stallion to the hill towns. How else were we to get our messages across? I did falconry once. I, I you know, I was pretty good at it. I, birds terrify me, though. I mean, they are tiny dinosaurs. Yeah. Hear ye, hear ye. On this fine 5th of August, lords and ladies, knights and milkmaids, fairies and fawns will all descend upon the meadows known to us as the Cummington Fairgrounds. Thence shall commence the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair. For the course of the weekend, delights and wonders shall be seen and presented of goodly nature and fine countenance. And to speak with us about some of the things you may see in the wilds of the hill towns this weekend is Jenny Crawford. Thank you so much for joining us. After all of the technical difficulties, which we will just assume is because we are reaching back through time to have interesting experiences with you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No problem. What is your role with the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair? Oh, I wear many hats. I, um, I do some of the advertising. I help clean the barns. I did <laughs> all kinds of things. Help pull in food trucks. That's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Tell me about cleaning the barns. What kind of animals are you cleaning up after here, Jenny? You know, I'm not too sure. There's there's hay and straw all over the place. I think they're mostly sheep. Mm-hmm. But we're we swept it all out. It's it's good. It's it's uh, ready for the fairies. You know, and ready for the horses. Is there going to be jousting this year? Oh yes, we have a full joust. Knights on horseback with lances. We have a fire dancer, a seraphin fire serpent. She performs with live drummers. We've got music, storytellers, a magic show, belly dancers, lots of entertainment. 
uh, all day Saturday and Sunday. Initially, this was supposed to happen for two weekends, like this weekend, the 5th Correct. and the 6th, and then next weekend, the 12th and the 13th. And now it's just just the one. Is there Were there some things that you wanted to bring to the festival that kind of had to go by the wayside because you didn't have as much time as you usually do? Yeah, we wanted to do a themed weekend where we would do like a time traveler weekend and people could come in as like, you know, Doctor Who or like Ooh. more space stuff, that kind of thing. But we'll make do with what we have. I think it's going to be a great fair this year. How long has the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair been happening in the Cummington Fairgrounds? At least five years. Uh, it was originally called the Market of the Moons. So interestingly, our, our fantasy backstory is that the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair is what the humans call it when the realm of the fairies opens to them and just so happens to land smack dab in the middle of Cummington. So the Market of the Moons, it was at, originally just a night market and now it is a full-on Renaissance Fair. And there's really fun like market things that you've got scheduled too. I was looking at uh, your website and the Bandersnatch Swap is such a cool neat idea. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so that is just kind of like a swap meet table. You can bring trinkets or whatever it is that you would like to trade with people. And you, yeah, bring like pieces and like costumes and like any item that you have and would like something else on the table and swap out your item for that other item and go about your business. It's so neat. Absolutely. <laughs> is that what a Bandersnatch is? Because I just thought it was that that like choose your own adventure episode of Black Mirror. I think it's that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent watch if you're if you want to do it. We're speaking with Jenny Crawford from the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair, which is happening this weekend at the Cummington Fairgrounds. Jenny, what got you into the world of of Renaissance fairs? I love the immersive storytelling environment of a good Ren fair. You know, when people can just really get their creative juices flowing. And the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair, we really try to be a world where you are, you are welcome no matter who you are or who you wish to be. So it's, I just love the storytelling aspect of it personally. And who do you dress? Do you like dress up and portray someone when you're at this fair? I know that the, it's magic and that the, you know, the Market of the Moons opens up and all that. But who, would, yeah, who so do we, we expect? Um, well, we are a fairy-themed Renaissance fair, but, you know, we expect everyone to show up. Fairies, knights, Doctor Who, stormtroopers from Star Wars. You can be a 21st century accountant in a t-shirt if that's what you want to be. <laughs> no, I don't. Live <laughs> your fantasy, Monty. Hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a way to get the creative juices flowing in the community. That's really what we strive to be. And whatever your fantasy is, whatever your you know, your storytelling passion is, we try to bring that to life at the fair. Jenny Crawford, who's with the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair happening this weekend at the Cummington Fairgrounds, tell us about the jousting. So this is, a you know, people on horses with lances going at each other, not really trying to kill each other, perhaps, like in the old days, but this is a spectacle to behold if you've ever seen anything like this at a Renaissance Fair. Who's who's bringing the jousting to Cummington? This year, uh, or actually all of our years, we our joust is put on by DeBracy Productions. I know they do some other Renaissance festivals way down in Maryland. I believe they, they're they like full-time jousters, I guess. <laughs> it's amazing that you can do that. I mean, a lot of times you can't get a full-time job doing jousting you have to freelance. Really? Really, Monty? <laughs> really. Have you been waiting this whole time? It was a bit of a setup, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
what I love about, you know, you were talking, Jenny, about, you know, being able to be whoever you are at this Renaissance Festival. And, and I love, I have way more costumes than any grown man my age should ever be able to justify, like in bins and, in a garage. Any grown man your age who doesn't actually work for a Renaissance yeah. Festival. Um, nice. And sometimes when the imagination runs wild, it can get um, out of hand. But you were very clear on your site about the uh, harassment policy, because sometimes these fairs have a reputation for being a little bit bawdy or uh, perhaps sometimes go over the line. But that is not going to ha- happen. And you're very strict about this with the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair. Oh, yes. we. It's Our fair is above all else a safe environment for everybody because... It does happen at other fairs, but we make sure it doesn't. We we no tolerance for any kind of harassment. I should speak a little to the market after dark. I was about to ask. Yeah, because there is an 18 <laughs> okay. plus element of it, too, which is also fun for people if that's what they're signing up for, for sure. I mean, the body songs are the fun part. Oh, right? absolutely. I love that kind of thing. But if some people don't, it's good to know that there are lines that are drawn. And one of them, uh, you know, not that there'll be harassment at the after dark, but. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, no. Absolutely. That's not what we're saying. No, it'll just get a little bit more. We're just saying that the metaphors for body parts will be far more interesting that's after right. about seven o'clock. Uh, yeah. So, so can you talk to us about Market After Dark? Sure. So the Market After Dark starts at 7 p.m. on Saturday. It is our adults-only risque night market. So there are performances and games to play. There's nothing like the energy at the Market After Dark. You really just have to come and experience it. What are some of your favorite parts about working with the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair? I love how into it people get. I love the way people... You know, they they show what inspires them in their costume. And everybody is so immersed into this fantasy realm that shows up in Cummington. You know, it's just, it's it's such a beautiful thing. You know, a a good rent fair, there's nothing quite like a good rent fair. Will you also be in costume, Jenny Crawford? I will be a kitchen wench. (laughs) So I will have a, a very functional costume that allows me to serve hot dogs. Uh, nothing too fancy. Will there be turkey legs to eat? Because to me, every, there will good, be... every good rent fair, you have to be walking around with a whole turkey leg. Oh, there will be turkey legs. Okay, good. You were worried that yeah. you were going to end up missing out. Khalees, you were excited because there is a medieval weapon that you get to use there, but kind of safely. Yes. So you have that there is a real working usable ballista at the Ren Fair. Is that a somebody who makes coffee? Oh, that's a barista. We actually have one of those, too. A barista, right. Not a a ballista. Yeah. What's a ballista? (laughs) Yes, so we do have a ballista, this giant crossbow that shoots sponges at targets or a heckler. Apparently, that's going to be there. Oh, hecklers. Watch out. Those could come in handy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We have a magical puzzle quest. We have uh, a giant chessboard. We have axe throwing, all kinds of games. And a board game library, which I think is really cool for folks who maybe don't want to be out in the sun, but still want to have like a fun kind of immersive experience. Absolutely. Yeah, we're looking. That's a new thing. We're looking forward to our board game tent this year. It's everything the nerd in your life could ever ask for <laughs> at one fairgrounds <laughs> in Cummington over one weekend. And, and I love it. Yes, you do. And there's a day that you can bring your pets. Yes, Sunday. Sunday is pet day. 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. It looks like it's going to be a temperate weekend, so they shouldn't be too hot, which is great. I'm going to bring my dragon. Isn't that just you? Or will you come dressed as a dragon? Enter the dragon. (laughs) 
Jenny Crawford from the Massachusetts Renaissance Fair happening this Saturday and Sunday at the Cummington Fairgrounds in Cummington. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend Fair when th- the veil yes. is thinnest. Fare thee well. Oh, God. Really? Yep. Khalees, you found all those awesome... Uh, because bardcore is very real, and it's kind of amazing. Tell, tell us what bardcore is. <laughs> it's when you cover songs with medieval inst- modern songs with medieval instruments, and sometimes change the lyrics as well. I would advise anybody to go look up the bardcore version of Pumped Up Kicks, which is hilarious. That's by Hildegard von Blingen. Indeed. And uh, that we were playing Algel the Bard before there that was doing the final countdown. And if you missed it at the beginning of that segment, it was... Uh, Kate Bush's running up that hill. Indeed. Continuing to pay homage to Kate Bush's, whose birthday it was on Sunday with the uh, the most Wuthering Heights day ever. And the most of the Monty's children on the same day. Yes. They, they all came to the most Wuthering Heights day ever and danced with me. Do yes. you um, Are you a regular attendee at Renaissance Fair, Scalise? I am not. I don't, I've always felt weird about not having costumes to go and do it. Yeah. Uh, but that was also in the times when I would, I was forgetting that or rather, in the times when I didn't think that I would be accepted for bringing Renaissance garb from other areas because people like to pretend that, like, Western Renaissance is all there really was when the whole other rest of the world existed and they also had garbets. Yeah. So There you go. Uh, but this one seems pretty open. You can come dressed up as Doctor Who. Indeed. Yeah. Coming up. go see, see hip-hop at Jacob's Pillow. We're yeah. encouraging you to do both. You can do both. It's a a long weekend. Well, you know, the weekend is two days. This is Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne and Bardcore. Coming up, if you're listening live uh, at 4 o'clock, there will be special coverage of the Trump indictment from NPR News. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, Holyoke is the city with the largest population per capita of Puerto Rican people outside of the island of Puerto Rico. And happening now through Sunday, Holyoke celebrates the Fiestas Patronales de Holyoke. And tomorrow we'll be joined by Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia, who was recently named Padrino of Boston's Puerto Rican Parade, and by folks from Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke who are hosting the Holyoke Fiesta. Plus live music Friday with the Fawns and the Wine Thunderdome with the folks at State Street. And again, this is Aljal the Bard playing Ozzy's Crazy Train. I'm Monty. I'm Khalees. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.